0: Well, before we turn our hearts uh, to uh, God's Word this morning, actually, you can turn to Romans chapter 5. We're continuing in our study through Romans, and before I read the first 11 uh, verses, I just want to bow and pray and ask God to open our hearts to His Word uh, this morning. Father, we thank you for um, this opportunity to come together as the body of Christ, to worship you, hopefully in spirit and truth. I pray that we would be able to set aside the busyness of our weeks and um, of our previous week and just uh, focus on you, ask your spirit to lead us and guide us in all truth. Father, we pray that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be exalted in this place through the teaching of your word this morning. Father, we hunger for your word as we do natural food. As believers, we thirst for your truth. And, Lord, I thank you that we have a church that desires to hear your truth and never grows weary or tired of the word being preached and and taught. And, Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. You've given us all a personal copy of your, your holy word, your inspired, inerrant word. And, Lord, we pray today that as we open it and read it, and look at a couple verses that we would just begin to understand um, the position that you've called us to as Christians. And Father, we thank you for the work that you've done in our hearts. And we pray if there's any here today who is yet to taste of that work, I pray that you would do a fresh work in them, that you would call them to yourself, that you would save them as only you can do, that you would show them their need of a Savior. That they could simply cry out to you, be merciful to me, a sinner. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Beginning in verse 1, Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by death, by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. If you've been following our study through Romans, if not, you have to go online and get the the, uh, the messages. But we've been looking at at Romans now for uh, a year, and uh, we've seen recently, as we've begun this study on justification by faith and faith alone, uh, that in chapter 3 of Romans, he talked just about that, justification. And then in chapter 4, he gave us an illustration, you might say, of Abraham, and how Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. And then now in chapter 5, as Paul often does, he begins to kind of tell us uh, why that matters. And so today I want to talk to you about the results of righteousness. And this is just, we're just going to look at the first couple verses here that we read because there's a lot to unpack here. Um, but we noticed that in chapter 4, Abraham needed this justification. And it wasn't... By works that he received it. And Paul went into detail. Um, It wasn't the divine ordinances. It wasn't the circumcision. Uh, In our vernacular today, it's not communion. It's not baptism that saves us. Uh, They don't save anybody. Divine ordinances never have and they never will save anybody. We also saw that Abraham was not justified by the law. There's a lot of people today that think if they do enough good and keep enough rules and regulations that somehow God will look down on them and say, okay, now you're righteous. And of all people, Paul uses Abraham as an example to say that, no, he was not justified by the law. And that's in verses uh, 13 to 17 of chapter 4. And then in verses 18 to 25, the last study actually we did in Romans, we saw that human effort... Does not justify us either. It was faith and faith alone that justified Abraham. Now we've been looking at this for some time, but I think it's good to kind of just review some of the words that we've been talking about. First one being justification. These these aren't on the notes, or I don't know, I don't think it's on the PowerPoint either. Um, First of all, there's justification. Okay, what does it mean to be justified? We, we talked about that. Some people say, well, just as if you'd never sinned. That's a simplistic um, definition of justification. And it's okay. But it's to be acquitted of all the charges against you. As we sang this morning, there were many charges against us. We were lost and steeped in our sin. Um, how can we be guilty before god and paul clearly shows us that we are in verses 18 of chapter 1 all the way through 320 he continues to beat that drum you're guilty everybody's guilty we've all sinned we've all fallen short of god's glory how can these charges just be dropped it's only possible if someone did something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves that someone could not be one of us because we're all lost in our sin. That someone had to be Christ, the God man. When Jesus died on the cross, at the end he said it was finished, all the work was completed. And so that allows God, for those who put their faith, their trust in Christ, to be justified, to be declared righteous. Doesn't mean we're always righteous in our practice. We're not perfect. But God declares us righteous. Another word we looked at was the word redeemed and redemption. What does it mean to be redeemed? You hear that word a lot. It means that somebody came and paid the debt that you owed. We used to sing a song in youth ministry uh, I owe a debt that I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. It means that someone came and paid the debt that you owe because of your sin. And the reason he did that is because of the cross. He came, he shed his blood on Calvary. He celebrated communion last Sunday. The fact that he redeemed us causes us to be able to be justified. If we were not redeemed, we could not be justified. Another term that we use quite a bit is that when we put our faith in him, in Christ, and in what he said, we are reckoned, the word is, as righteousness. We're reckoned as righteous. What does that mean? It means that when we put our faith into Christ's work on the cross, in the divine accounting of heaven, God simply writes beside our name, he is justified, he is made righteous, he is made acceptable, he is reckoned as a righteous individual and worthy to come into heaven because of his faith in the work of Christ. Another word that we've talked about a little bit was propitiation. Propitiation kind of a big word, but it simply means that the father accepted the son's sacrifice. It means that he was satisfied. It means that the penalty for sin was carried out. That's why when Christ died upon the cross, he satisfied the father at the end of his death. He simply said, it's finished. The work is complete. We don't need to continue to work for our salvation. Now, the Bible says that we need to work out our salvation. But we don't work for our salvation. He did something for us that we could not do for ourselves. And because of that, we're offered forgiveness. There's two words in the, 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 uh, here for forgiveness. One word comes from the, the root word for grace. It means to do a favor for someone that they could never deserve. The word here in Romans though the word forgiveness means to send away never to return again. And so when God forgives us of our sin there's not even a slight chance that somehow he could someday hold us guilty for that sin. I mean that's a wonderful truth. That's a wonderful doctrine. And the one thing we're going to be looking at next year is or next week is the security of our salvation in Christ. There's a lot of people today that believe that somehow you can get saved and then unsaved and then saved and then unsaved. I mean, I don't know about you, but that would not be a good place to be in. Can you imagine if your salvation depended on what you're doing at any given one time in your life? Or if you've done enough or you haven't, how would you ever know if you were... Saved, that you would have security in Christ. That's why in Romans 8, and we'll get there maybe this year, I don't know. But Romans 8, he says, there is therefore what? Now, no condemnation for those that are in Christ. None. None at all. And so, there's also the word grace, and we've looked at that word. It means undeserved favor. Someone gives you something that you don't deserve. The other end of that is mercy. And that is someone withholding something that you do deserve. And I just wanted to do that to make sure that we're kind of on the same foundation as we begin our study this morning. As you read through verses 1 to 11, I've read this a lot the last couple weeks. And it reminded me on TV where they have those uh, sales pitches. You know, the guy comes on and says, yeah, you know, this appliance would do this, this would do that. And for 1995, this appliance can be yours. But that's not all. (laughs) We're going to throw in this deluxe set of steak knives. But that's not all. You know, we're going to throw in this, whatever, blah, 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 funky hose that curls itself up, or whatever. And they go on and on and on for another ten minutes. That's kind of what Paul is doing here. He's kind of, he gave us all this information in the first four chapters of Romans. And he begins by showing the fallen condition of mankind, and the righteousness of God, and his righteous wrath that is revealed against that. And then he shows how God in his righteousness provided for us a salvation through the person and work of Christ. And it's almost as if Paul says here in chapter 5, but wait, that's not all. There's more. And indeed there is more. And that's what we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks. Because all the blessings, all the benefits, all the results that Paul describes here in chapter 5 are a result, are a blessing of our being justified by faith and faith alone. And Paul begins with the blessing of peace in verse 1, and he ends with the praise of God in verse 11. He starts in the past, you might say, with redemption, what Christ accomplished on the cross of Calvary, and he ends totally in the future. In our future, escape from divine wrath in verse 11. And we'll be with him forever. Enjoyment in the kingdom of God. You might consider justification by faith to be compared to kind of like a, a, a ticket. An admission ticket to Disneyland. Disneyland. See, Disneyland's changed. Disney World's changed. Remember when you had the E ticket and the D ticket and all you had to they don't do that anymore. You just buy one ticket and you can go anywhere you want. It covers the price of admission. And that's the way justification is. The atoning death of our Lord Jesus Christ purchased not only our salvation, but every spiritual blessing, both now in our present life and also in the future. And chapters 3 and 4 describe the gift of justification by faith. Largely in the terms of salvation that it provides. And now in these first 11 verses of Romans chapter 5, Paul begins to kind of unwrap. To expound on some of these many blessings. The results of our righteousness that we have. Now, sometimes when you purchase something new, if you go buy a new car, per se, before you get out of the showroom, what are they trying to do? They're trying to like sign, have you sign this contract that has this extended service policy. I've never understood that. I mean, if you're buying a good car, I mean, you know, one of the first things they talk to you about well, now when it breaks, you know, it just doesn't make sense to me. But we, you know, a lot of times they sign up for it. Oh, this looks good. Um, and before the car is even driven off the showroom, sometimes we begin to worry about it breaking down. Sometimes we buy certain things thinking, wow, this is really going to work neat. I, I bought a, uh, this, this past Christmas, I bought Crystal. She does a lot of cooking, so I bought her a Vitamix. And I told her for years, I said, you've got to buy a Vitamix. I mean, this thing's just incredible. It'll grind up concrete if you want it to. It's just it's phenomenal. And she's like, no, 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 no. no. I'm going to buy the Ninja, the Ninja or whatever. I said, it's garbage. Don't do it. <laughs> Sorry if you own one of those, but. Well, she went ahead and bought it. Got a good deal on it. She thought, oh, this is the greatest thing. You know, and I think it maybe lasted a month or two. And she cooks a lot and it didn't live up to all the, the hype, you know, and so she was very blessed when she got her new Vitamix out. And, and we were very blessed, too, because that encouraged her to cook. And, and, uh, and we, we got to have uh, good meals together. Um, a lot of times when you buy things, that's what happened. But there's, there's an exception here. The gospel of Jesus Christ, let me tell you, right from the top, is not that way. I've never met someone who's been truly converted. Truly converted. They're truly saved. And they came back to me and said, you know what, I want my money back. Sorry, this doesn't live up to what the hype was all about. Now, there may have been some people that thought they were saved that weren't. Tried to live the Christian life without the Spirit of God. That can be very frustrating. But for those of us who are truly born again, I can't imagine any of us saying, you know what, I want to go back to the old way of life. I want to go back to when I was steeped in my sin and torn all that stuff. You know you just wouldn't hear of that. And see, the Gospel of Jesus Christ promises us forgiveness for their sin, for our sin, and it also provides a certainty of a relationship with the God that created us for all eternity. And it lives up to its claims. Once we enter into that relationship, With God through the Lord Jesus Christ in His work, we discover a whole new world of blessings that maybe we're not even anticipated, and it all comes out of this fact that we were justified by faith. And so He begins to unpack these blessings. There's no hype in the gospel. There's only hope. The gospel won't let you down. Now, when we begin to look at this, we're going to be talking about some doctrinal things, as we have been, and that's been basically the way Paul operates. And in a lot of churches today, doctrine is something that is considered boring, irrelevant, you know, if it doesn't work For me, why do I have to even understand it? We want something practical. Well, I think this is very practical, but but it's also doctrinal. Um, A lot of times we tend to skip all the doctrine and we just want to know how to fix it. If you go into the Christian bookstores, you find a lot of books that tell you how to fix things. They skip over all the doctrinal things. So you may end up fixing your problem, but you end up repeating the problem because you don't have any foundation of truth to stand on. Paul would view doctrine kind of as the foundation of a house. You would never think of building a house without a foundation. You wouldn't just start putting walls up, prop them up, and kind of tie them together and say, there, I got a house. You have to have a foundation. That's what secures the home, that secures the walls. And in all his letters, he has this same basic uh, layout. And here in Romans, he spends 11 chapters laying down the doctrinal foundation before he really gets practical. So in chapter 5, it's almost like he can't contain himself. He kind of, it's almost parenthetical put in here. He's doctrine before, doctrine after, but it kind of is building up within him. And he says, you know, I just got to show you how this affects you. some people say that chapter 5 is kind of a section in and of itself. Others say that it goes with chapter 6. Others say that it ties in with chapter 4. I tend to believe it ties in with chapter 4. If you look at this, these verses 11, 1 through 11, you see the word exalt three times there. He says in verse 2 that Paul exalts in the hope of glory. Verse 3, he exalts in his tribulations of all things. And then in verse 11, he exalts in God. The theme of reconciliation with God ties back to the opening theme in verse 1. Verses 10 and 11 just kind of make this parenthetical little sandwich. And so we could call this section exalting in the results of righteousness or the blessings of justification. And he gives us three. Justification by faith gives us peace with God. It gives us access to his grace. And it also gives us the joyous confidence that we will share in his glory. So let's look at the first one. Justification by faith gives us peace with God. He says in verse 1, Therefore, having since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The opening phrase there of chapter 5 draws the logical argument of all the previous chapters. You have to understand, Paul is constantly telling him, this is not of you, this is not of you, salvation is by faith, it's not of works, lest any man should boast. And his readers are probably thinking, okay, well, how do we know if this is secure or not? How do we know this is really? I mean, it felt good when we were working for something, because, you know, but if you're just saying God gives us this, how do we know we can be secure? And he says there the first word, therefore. Martin Lloyd Jones makes this comment. He says, I sometimes think that the whole secret of the Christian life is to know how to use the word therefore. (laughs) And I've said multiple times, when you see the word therefore, check out why it's there Um, it's so important it's not just a casual word that's thrown in there it's the application of the argument that paul has developed in the previous four chapters what's the theme that we're justified by faith we're justified by faith alone in christ alone Righteousness is not given to us. It's not imputed to us because of our works. It's not imputed to us because of our heritage. It's not imputed to us because of some religious ritual we do or keeping a bunch of rules. It comes almost as an alien gift from God through the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes out of pure grace. That's why justification is only through faith. So that it might be free of any human contribution. Or as one commentator puts it, any human contamination. What does it mean to be justified? Before we look at the fruits of justification, that word therefore really kind of gives us four things. First of all, it tells us that justification is definite. It says, having been justified. That's in the aorist passive tense. It's not something you do. It's something that was done. The aorist tense in the original language points to a past act of God, divine intervention, to declare sinners righteous. And it has ongoing ramifications. Justification is not a future verdict that we await when we stand before God's judgment throne, but rather it's a past act on the part of Jesus Christ. Having been justified indicates that God has already accomplished the work. This is good to know. This is good news. We're not working to be justified. We are justified if we've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. In chapter 3, verses 24 to 25, Paul explains that through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, there's one of those words, a satisfaction in his blood through faith. So justification is something that's definite. It's not left up to some loosey goosey belief or whatever. It's, it's, it's definite. We've been justified. Secondly, justification is settled, it's done. It's unrepeatable, you might say. No one can add to what Jesus has already done through his perfect obedience and death on the cross. Is that good news that God doesn't justify anyone because of his own good works or because they participate in certain religious rituals or because... Maybe they keep certain rules or regulations or they help the poor or they give money to the church or whatever. No, he justifies in his son, in his son alone. See, if we're still in our faith trying to add to what Christ has done on our behalf, we do not understand and we will not understand justification and we will not definitely understand the peace of God. How can you have peace of God in your life if you're constantly trying to work for something. There's no peace in that. So justification is definite. It's settled. Thirdly, justification is distinct. It's distinct. What I mean by that, it's a de- definitive legal act on the part of God. Paul tells us that in chapter 3. We looked at this, verse 26. He says that God is the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God could not simply declare a sinner to be righteous unless every transgression has been paid for. Or he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be holy. Every demand of his eternal justice has to be met. And a new righteousness clothed the previous transgressor. That's why we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, because we don't have a righteousness of our own. Jesus Christ did it all. And because of that, justification is distinctly charged to the believer's account. It changes the believer's relationship between him and God. It changes the believer's relationship between him and the law. The one with whom he, had, he was at enmity with is now called father. We were once enemies of God. Now he, he calls us his children. The law that once condemned us now leads us into living for him obediently. God views the sinner as righteous in Christ. It's Definite, it's settled, it's distinct. And then lastly here, fourth, justification is all of grace. That's why it's by faith. So that no man could boast that he's done something to put himself in the right standing with God. It's important that we understand those four things. And that's all tied up in in that first phrase there, therefore. That's what he wants us to understand. If salvation is all of grace, then that means it's all of God. Since grace is the action of God's love to the understanding, undeserving sinner. I mean, he's just unpacked the gospel in these chapters, 2, 3, 4. And now he says, you know what, this is going to affect you. These are the results of your salvation, the results of being declared righteous, the results of your justification. Now, depending on what translation you have, some translations read there in verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, let us have peace with God. Some translations Read, we have peace with God. That's probably the proper rendering of that. Because there's no other commands here in the context. I don't think he's commanding us to have peace with God. He's simply saying, you will have peace with God as a result of your justification which leads to righteousness. I was thinking about this earlier this week and I'm thinking... You know, the peace of God really is multifaceted. It touches every, every area of our life. Um, part of what you said, Ken, coming in on two wheels was, was actually partially true. <laughs> um, when we were landing at SFO, you know, the plane's coming in, everything's normal, and all of a sudden, you know, you hear the pilot jack up the engines <laughs> and they start to whine i'm thinking whoa what's he doing you know and uh, after he kind of started around again he said oh, well you can thank norcal for the scenic view that we're going to give you of the bay area uh, there was a plane in front of us that was going too slow and rather than make him go around he made us go around and I, as i looked around the plane as that started to happen i noticed some people just you know it started to tense up I was fine. I was like, this is kind of cool, you know. Let's see what this guy's going to do. You know, there's a peace there. The worst thing that happens the plane crash and I die I'm with the Lord, you know. I mean, there's a peace there. There's a peace that, that, you know, you lose your job. When you know the Lord, there's a peace. See, God's not going to forsake you. When you go to the doctor and you're diagnosed with something, you know that God understands that. He's going to take care of you. So he's not commanding us here to have peace. He's basically saying as a result of your justification and as a result of having the righteous relationship with God, you have peace with God. And that's the most wonderful gift that you can possess. It doesn't refer to some inner feeling. It's not talking about a a feeling of peace. It's rather talking about the objective fact of peace in your relationship with your Creator. Uh, People may feel at peace with God when, in fact, they are in danger of his judgment. Read Jeremiah 6.14. Genuine peace with God means that we are truly reconciled with him. We're no longer enemies with God, but we're his friends. We don't need to fear his judgment. Not that we don't have a reverence for him. Obviously, we do. See, because of the universality of sin, the human race basically pits itself against God. They're at war with God. Many feel at peace because they don't understand God's absolute holiness. They don't understand their own sinfulness. So they look at this whole thing and say, Yeah, I'm at peace, no big deal. Because they think they're okay. You know, you're know, you okay, I'm okay. That doesn't fly with Scripture. Because of sin, the wrath of God abides on all who do not believe in and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What that means is that unless people come to peace with God on His terms... When they die, they will face eternal judgment. You may be the world's greatest philanthropist. Maybe you've given millions of dollars to help the poor. That's not going to atone for your sins. Maybe you're the nicest person. A lot of people just love knowing you and talking with you. All the niceness and love in the world is not going to atone for your sins. Maybe you're religious. but The most religious person in the world cannot gain entrance into heaven by the religious observance. None of those things do it. None of those things gain this peace that Paul is talking about. Well, how do we get it? To have peace with God, you must be justified by faith. It's that simple. If you don't know what it means to be justified by faith, then you need to go back and listen to the messages on chapter 3 through chapter 4. But it means simply that God declares an ungodly person to be righteous, even though he's not, based on that person trusting in Christ's death as a payment for his or her sins. It's not something that we deserve. It's definitely not something that we can earn. It's a gift of grace and grace alone. And so Paul's statement here implies that we can know for certain that we have been justified by faith and that we are now at peace with God. If you're sitting here this morning and your mindset is somehow you're adding your good works to what Christ has done on the cross, I can tell you right straight up, you're not justified. You have a, an unbiblical view of your salvation. If that were true, how would you know when you've done enough? How would you know when you served enough or given enough money? Does a little light go on? How do you know that? The system of of salvation by works keeps everyone in the state of uncertainty about whether they're saved or not. And a lot of religions like that. A lot of churches like that. And a lot of churches teach that. Why? Because it keeps them dependent on the church. There's certain churches that will teach certain things. That basically, if you know, hey, should we come to church? Sure. I mean, we're commanded in in scriptures not to. Abstain from from the fellowship of the brethren. Not forsake that, and we shouldn't use our salvation as a license to just go do whatever we want. But there are some churches that are so so legalistic and so focused on attendance and, and these kind of things. You miss one Sunday, boy, your your whole salvation is called into question. Are you even committed? I mean, like I said, we should yearn to, 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 to be with the brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ. And by the way, that even includes when you're on vacation. Okay, we went to a Christmas Eve service. I went to two Sunday services in this church over there that they go to, Makakilo Baptist Church. Wonderful pastor. Had, had, had uh, coffee with him. And uh, good, good ministry going on there. And it was neat to to sit there and hear the word of God taught and enjoy the, the worship amongst God's people. But Paul implies here that we can know that we are justified by faith and faith alone. So as a consequence, we don't need to fear God's judgment. As I said, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Secondly, to have peace with God, you must have the Lord Jesus Christ as your Redeemer, as your Mediator. It says we have peace with God through what? Our Lord Jesus Christ. He says this often. It means that the peace of God is not due to any merits or efforts on our part but rather through what Jesus Christ has already done on the cross. All that God has done for us is found in or through Jesus Christ. Verse 1, chapter 5, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 11, chapter 5, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, chapter 5, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 23 of chapter 6, in Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 7, verse 25, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 8, verse 39, in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so every facet of our salvation is tied up with that. When you stop and think of having peace with God or having the peace of God, we're talking about peace with God here in Romans 5. The peace of God is found over in Philippians chapter 4. It's a big difference. The peace with God talks about a relationship, the peace of of God talks about having fellowship with God. Peace with God is the need of the sinner. the peace of god is the need of the saint what does the the peace with god takes us to heaven think of it this way peace of god brings heaven to us we get peace with god at the moment of our salvation but the peace of god is given to us moment by moment as we walk in the power of the spirit and he says here, it's only possible through our Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, he says, he is our Lord. That's the first thing we see here. What's that mean? He's sovereign. He's sovereign. We're his subjects. We're slaves of Christ. We don't get to do whatever we want after we're a believer. When you become a Christian, there's, there's no option to believe in Jesus as your Savior, then your Lord. It doesn't work that way. He is both Savior and Lord, which means when you begin your Christian life, you submit everything to Him. That's what the Scripture says. You deny yourself, you take up your cross, an instrument of death, and you follow Him. That's why we're called Christians. And as we grow in Him, we learn to submit more and more and more to Him. But secondly, not only is He our Lord, but secondly, as Jesus, He is fully human. He's fully human. He took on human flesh. We talked about that at Christmas time. Yet, apart from any sin, he lived in perfect dependence upon his heavenly Father, in perfect obedience to do the Father's will, not his own. He went to the cross to atone for our sins. And thirdly, it says that he is Christ. As Christ, he is God's anointed Messiah, he's the anointed one. He's the one that saves us. He's the anointed prophet, priest, and king, the scripture says. As God's anointed prophet, Jesus spoke the very word of God to us when he was here. As God's high priest, Jesus offered himself for our sins once for all to atone for our sins. And it says that he makes intercession for us in Hebrews. Hebrews. And as God's anointed king, Jesus is the rightful sovereign reign over our lives. He's coming again. And he's going to come to rule the nations with a rod of iron, the Bible says. To tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, Revelation 19.15. See, what this means is the only way to have peace with God is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. Secondly, justification by faith gives us access to our standing in the riches of God's grace. Look at what it says in verse 2. It says, Through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Some manuscripts omit by faith, but the context clearly makes it clear that it should be there. It's by faith we receive all of God's benefits. Our access to God comes, first of all, through the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, through whom? It refers to Christ. It doesn't come through Buddha, it doesn't come through Muhammad. It doesn't come through Joseph Smith, it comes through Christ. Introduction there says, it may point to our initial introduction into the sphere of God's grace. It's used in extra-biblical writings to refer to when you're, when you're introducing someone to royalty. You give them an Introduction. And the President of the United States walks out before a group of people. Someone introduces him. Other New Testament authors use... You turn this down. I don't know why it went up like that. Other New Testament authors use this to really focus on, on a verb, to bringing someone into another person's presence. So it could refer to our, our first initial introduction to God's grace when we first believed. Ephesians 2.18 says, Through him we both, the Jews and Gentiles, have our access in one spirit, To God the Father. In Ephesians 3.12, he says, In whom Jesus Christ our Lord, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. It means we don't need another way of accessing God. Jesus himself in John 4.14.6 says what? He's the way, the truth, and the life. There's only one way. We don't need to pray to Mary. We don't need to pray to saints. We don't need to go to a priest. We don't need to be go through some religious ceremony. We come directly to the Father in the name of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That gains us access anytime, anywhere. Late Donald Gray Barnhouse used this illustration. He told about a story of Abraham Lincoln when he was president. He said a southern soldier who had been freed from a prison camp because he was way too wounded to return to the active duty, so they just kind of let him go. He was trying to seek access to the president to intercede for his brother who was also in the prison camp. And his brother was the only one that could care for their mother. So this injured soldier thought, who was freed thought, if he can go see the president explain the situation, hopefully... The president would leave his brother out to go home and care for his mother. But the White House guards would have none of it. They wouldn't let him near the president. And one day, Lincoln's son, Tad, was out walking through the town because of less security back then. And he was walking near the White House, and he saw this freed soldier just weeping on this bench. And the boy went up and said, hey, what's going on? What's wrong? And the soldier explained why he wanted to go see the president and and how his brother was still in prison and he needed to go home and and care for his mother, but he couldn't get to the president to explain the situation. And the story says that the president's son, Tad, took the man by the hand, led him past the guards when all the guards saluted the son, and they brought the man right into the presence of President Lincoln. Now, whether that story is true or not, it illustrates what Jesus Christ has done for us, the Son of God. That's what he's done. We were desolate. We were alone. We were wounded by our sin. We had no way to come into God's holy presence. And on the cross, Jesus, the Bible says, tore that veil that separated the holy of holies. See, when we come to faith in Christ, He clothes us with his righteousness. And then he takes us by the hand and he leads us again and again, anytime we have need, into the presence of his Father. What a blessing that is. Our access, secondly, to God puts us in permanent standing in the riches of God's grace. The verb tense there, having obtained and in which we stand. It it indicates a past action with continuing results. We've gained entrance, and now we have ongoing standing. We can come back any time we want before the Lord. That word stand implies a, a place of solid footing. Will and Crystal live on Ford Island over there in the middle of Pearl Harbor. They live on an island, on an island. It's kind of weird, but that's where they live. And you walk out the front door, and you go across this probably 50 yards of grass, and you have the USS Missouri docked there. And then to the left, the USS Missouri, you have the, the Arizona Memorial. So every morning, it was my habit to take, when I was sick, I'd take Duke, the dog, down there for a walk along the water. And we were down there one morning, and I was standing there, and Duke left him off the leash, and he was kind of going out in the water a little bit. And it's weird because all the rocks are coated with oil from the, the Arizona. Just old old coated oil. And uh, he got down there and I thought, well, I need to go get him. I don't want him to get all wet. make a mess in the house. And I went down to put the collar on him and I stepped on one of these wet, because the waves are coming in a little bit, wet rocks, thinking, oh, this is good. As soon as I stepped on it, man, I almost went down. I was, you know, we going to be all wet. And I caught myself and I thought, man, that's really slippery. And you know, between the oil and the moss and, and stuff that was on this rock, it, it was not a good place to stand. That's not what we have in Christ. He says that we have a firm footing in Christ. We are solid. We don't have to worry about slipping away. In Ephesians 2.7, Paul says that in the ages to come... God will show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In 3A Ephesians, he says, he describes it as unfathomable riches in Christ. All those things are what it is that we stand on. It's a place where we have the right footing. When you trust in Christ, he becomes our way of access into the presence of Of God, and He treats you as a son, and we treat Him as a loving Father. You don't have to worry about God as your Father. Maybe some of you grew up with not a great Father, and you think, Boy, the whole imagery of God being my Father just doesn't do it for me. Well, trust me, He's nothing like your Father. Whether your Father was good or bad, He is so much more than that. And we have that solid footing. We don't have to worry about us slipping. That's why in, if, in Romans chapter 8, verses 31-35, he says, If God is for us, who can be against it? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ... Is he who died? Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And he closes off with Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Thirdly, in closing, justification by faith gives us the joyous confidence that we will share in his glory. Do you ever think about that? We're going to share in his glory. That's our future. It's not something that's uncertain. It's not something that we, you know, like we say, boy, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. No, it's not like that kind of hope. This is a certainty. It's absolutely certain because it's based upon the promises of God who never fails. And we see that we're going to share in God's glory. I mean, Peter, James, John, they got a glimpse of Jesus' glory in the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses in the Old Testament uh, basically asked to see God's glory, but just saw the backside, whatever that means. Couldn't see the whole thing. Paul also says that he hopes to see the glory of Christ. I don't know what it's going to be like in heaven, but when we stand before and see the glory of God, and we share in that glory, it's going to be the most beautiful, incredible thing we've ever experienced. Paul himself was blinded by a heavenly vision on the road to Damascus. He was caught up in the third heaven. He couldn't even talk about it. I mean, it's going to be an incredible thing. The confidence of sharing in God's glory causes us that joyous exaltation that he's talking about. He says we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. It's a favorite word that Paul uses here, exalt. Literally means to boast or glory. And now we don't want to exalt ourselves. But there's nothing wrong with exalting in Christ, exalting in God, exalting in the cross. Suppose you took your child to Disneyland. Your child walked around for the first hour at Disneyland going like this. Eventually, you'd probably say, "What What are you looking at your feet for? Well, Dad, I don't want to trip. Because if I trip and hurt myself, I'll have to leave Disneyland. You say, Well, that's kind of a weird illustration. It is, but it makes a point. Many Christians live their Christian lives like this. Timid, scared, afraid they're going to trip, afraid they're going to fall. They're so busy examining their life to make sure that they're doing enough, doing the right things, not making any mistakes, that they're missing out on the whole relationship that they could be enjoying with the Lord. You would tell your child, look, look around you. You're in Disneyland. Quit looking at your feet. If you fall, you fall. It's worth the risk. Max Lucado captures the idea of, of, of this with a biblical list that he puts out, the hope of glory. Hopefully this gives us a little excitement. He says you are beyond condemnation, Romans eight one. You are delivered from the law, Romans seven six. You are near God, Ephesians two thirteen. You are delivered from the power of evil, Colossians one thirteen. You are a member of his kingdom, Colossians one thirteen. You are justified, Romans five one. You are perfect, Hebrews ten fourteen. You have access to God at any moment, Ephesians two eighteen. You are a part of the, his priesthood, 1 Peter 2, 5. You will never be abandoned, Hebrews thirteen five. You have an imperishable inheritance, 1 Peter 1, 4. You are a partner with Christ in life, Colossians 3, 4, and privilege, Ephesians 2, 6, and suffering, 2 Timothy two twelve and service, 1 Corinthians 1, 9. Nine. You are a member of his body, first Corinthians twelve, thirteen. You are a branch in the vine. John fifteen five. You are a stone in the building, Ephesians two, nineteen to twenty. You are a bride for the groom, Ephesians five, twenty five to twenty seven. You are a priest in the new generation, first Peter two, nine. And you are also a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, first Corinthians six, nineteen. I mean, wrap your mind around some of the things. That's not even a complete list. That should make you anticipate heaven a little more. We need to anticipate the joys of heaven. Sometimes we miss out on that. We're kind of like a, a soldier that's stuck in a foxhole eating K-rations. And we're, we're there and just stuck and hot and dirty During the night, another soldier appears, calls out your name, your serial number, and says, Hey, I'm here. I have orders. I'm to replace you. You're to get on the next Red Cross flight out of here. The orders come for you to go home. You go back to your mother's house, get a hot shower, put on some new clothes. She's going to cook you a nice southern fried chicken meal with mashed potatoes and gravy, apple pie, ice cream for dessert. And the soldier says this. You don't mean that I'm going home? I have to leave this nice foxhole and give up these K rations? Are you serious? Barnhouse says this. We smile smile at that absurdity. And yet there are some believers, perhaps some of you, who are unwilling to leave your foxhole in this life to go to the heavenly home, to sit down at the banquet table of our God and to fellowship with him in the joys of heaven. Three questions, questions in conclusion. Have you been justified by faith so that you enjoy the peace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ? Only you can answer that question. Secondly, do you frequently utilize your access to God and the riches of his grace through our Lord Jesus Christ? Thirdly, do you exalt in your certain future of sharing God's glory. We'll continue to look at this passage next week, but let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the many blessings that we have in our righteousness, the results of our righteousness, the blessings of our justification. We know that this comes purely as an act of your grace. It comes by faith and faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that if there's any hearts here today who has yet to put their faith or trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his work on the cross, I pray that they would give it up, that they would give up trying to work harder for approval from you. They can't work enough. They can't do enough. They have to simply trust. The Bible says in the New Testament, there was a man who simply just fell to his knee, beat his chest and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what God wants to hear from us. He doesn't want to hear, but I'm a good person. I come to church, I do. He doesn't want to hear any of that. He just wants to hear you say, I need a Savior, and I know Christ is the Savior, and I trust in Him. May that be the prayer of your heart this morning, because that's a prayer that God will answer when it comes from a truly repentant, sincere, humble heart. For us believers, I pray that we'll leave this place with a little spring in our step, realizing what awaits us when we depart from this life into the next. And, Father, that we would not forget that we have a role here to play while we're still here on earth. That we should reach out to the lost, the dying, the hurting, with the glorious gospel of Christ. I pray that this church, this coming year, would be a beacon of truth and light and power of your word. That we would see people converted to Christ as a result of your work. As a result of using us in this ministry together. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.